Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio. We are here to discuss the reverberations emanating from the release of the John Bolton book, uh, The Room Where It Happened, uh, which uh, has made its way uh, into the press this week and apparently into bookstores, despite efforts by the White House to clamp down on that. And we will discuss those efforts with Ryan Goodman, who is somewhere out, you know, by a beach, I assume. Is, Is all well with you, Ryan? All's pretty well. Thanks. And David Sanger, who is in Vermont, um, hunkered down. How are you doing, David? Just watching the cows. And this <laughs> watch, watching the cows. Yeah, we discussed on the last episode, Ryan, that we're going to start. We're going to make cat, uh, mugs again for everybody, including you, Ryan. But uh, everybody wants David Sanger's mug to have a cow on it. David Sanger's cow. Um, and we will be joined. Uh, not too too long by Greg Sargent of the Washington Post as well, who has been writing on this and has just now come up against a deadline, but he'll be joining us in a few minutes. Um, I just first want to get some initial reactions to this. Uh, it seems every few days something Trump does or somebody says about Trump seems shocking, and that that's still the case after three and a half years is remarkable. David, do you think there's anything in this book that is a surprise? Nothing that I would call shocking. There's some details that are a surprise. I mean, by and large, at this point, three and a half years into the Trump presidency, we've got the big scale narrative. What's interesting about um, John Bolton's account, I think, is twofold. One, He's a prodigious note taker. So no matter what you think about his politics and all that, just the sort of inner scenes, everything from Donald Trump falling asleep at uh, at a a meeting with um, Prime Minister Abe of Japan, which to Donald Trump's defense, others have probably been tempted at various moments, to um, his offering up uh, to President Xi that, uh, you know, it's fine if you go build those, uh, those camps uh, or being willing to trade away uh, Huawei and our interests in 5G if, uh, if you can just get a slightly better trade deal. I don't think any of this would shock us at this moment, but it's interesting to read the specific detail and, and have it from him. I think the second big conclusion I come to about this is that um, uh, John Bolton is right about Donald Trump. He's guided by nothing but himself and zigzags constantly in his 
in his perpetual reassessment of what's in his or his family's immediate interest, and that Donald Trump is right about uh, John Bolton, uh, which is when uh, Trump said uh, he would have gotten us into several wars by now. When you read through the book, you come to the conclusion he might well have. What about you, Ryan? Uh, you've been following this pretty closely. Anything, anything surprise you, or as David says, is this just confirmation of more that we knew? I think it's confirmation um, of what we already knew. I do think that, and, and I was also agree with David. I think the details are um, what's kind of new in, in some sense. But I thought a couple pieces were how systematic the details are in the chapter that's been released on China, in that. There's no way to then, after reading that, if you believe Bolton 90% of the way, to think that Trump has a core piece of anything left about being like hard on China. There's so many ways in which it's all about Trump in the moment and his ego and the kind of photo opportunities that he's going for rather than the policies that he's going for that I think it's the details in a certain way quantitatively add up to something that in terms of a profile of Trump and his China policy is devastating, especially uh, come the election. And it's even a wonder to me that the Trump campaign was thinking that they were going to try to run against Joe Biden as Joe Biden being soft on China when they knew that this chapter was coming in all likelihood uh, to the public. So there's that part of it. Um, And then the other part of it is, you know, I suppose maybe as my own naivete, I thought still I can understand that a lot that drives Trump is just purely Trump, but I wouldn't have thought it was so comprehensive across the board. And that is indeed um, the leadership profile that Bolton provides both in the book and then in his um, ABC interview. And it's so funny in a way in which I've thought about that the Bolton description of Trump and the George Conway description of Trump uh, overlap to a much greater degree than I would have anticipated. There's nothing that, Bolton says that's in favor of Trump having policy or looking after the U.S. national security. Um, So maybe it's even to some degree exaggerated in that sense, but that is the profile that we're being given of who Trump really is behind the scenes. You know, David, when I hear uh, these responses, and I understand the responses both of you have given, I have to say we maybe need to stop and take a walk around the block and think about this a little bit, because to say that a book could come out that shows the United States president perfectly happy and actually encouraging the Chinese leader to uh, put Muslims in concentration camps, uh, that he's willing to trade away U.S. national security interests in, in exchange for support in a presidential campaign, that he's willing to offer up to autocrats around the world um, his assistance in helping them dodge legal problems in exchange for support, that he was willing to um, uh, create a diversion by effectively putting his blessing on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi just simply to distract away from uh, a brewing email scandal with his daughter, uh, and on and on and on. Any one of these things would have, if not been the end of a prior presidency, would have been so shocking that we would have been, um, uh, you know, the, the news media would have come to a stop discussing it. And here Trump uh, presents, uh, or Bolton presents these, these incidents from Trump's life 
And our, our collective reaction is, yeah, well, that's Trump. Yep, that's our collective reaction because, you know, three and a half years have uh, dulled us to this um, particular narrative. Uh, I think that's why, you know, Ryan and I don't sound um, all that shocked by this. Um, I think it's also, you know, John Bolton's um, a very good note taker, but a little bit of an imperfect messenger, right? I mean, uh, when Bolton was appointed national security advisor, um, I don't recall that um, you greeted this as uh, a major step forward for American foreign policy uh, <laughs> on, on Deep State Radio, okay? No. No. <laughs> no. And, and so John Bolton was, on that day, the conservatives' favorite who would get tough, and that's why Trump uh, hired him, although he now he said in an interview last night that that Bolton was already washed up by the time he became national security advisor, which wasn't quite the description I remember President Trump offering of him that day, right? Um, and, uh, and he was the liberal, the bane of liberal existence. He's now perfectly flipped, right? He's the truth teller from the inside who comes out and tells, and, and tells us what working for Donald Trump is all about. And we're willing to go along with all of this because it's completely consistent with everything we've learned working with Donald Trump is all about. But the alternative policies that uh, Mr. Bolton suggests in here, I suspect probably wouldn't sit so well with you. No, I don't think there's any question, but that nothing John Bolton would suggest would sit well with anybody. But uh, clearly, um, this. Uh, assessment from the inside of the Trump presidency is going to play a role in our the longer-term historical appreciation for what sets it apart. I see Greg Sargent has joined us. Um, and Greg, we're talking about the initial reactions to the Bolton book. And so perhaps I could turn to you and, and get your initial reaction as well. Well, what I'm a little puzzled by has been the outpouring of anger at Bolton uh, for not coming forward during impeachment. Obviously, it would have been a terrific thing to have happen at the time, but I don't see how in any way that diminishes the importance of what we're seeing right now. I'm actually skeptical that even having Bolton testify during impeachment would have made a difference with the Republican Senate. It might have picked up one more or two more. But that aside, we now have uh, very clear and concrete claims from someone who's widely trusted among conservatives supporting the entire case that we've all been making against Trump for years. And that seems to me to be a, a major event in the Trump presidency, and I'm a little surprised that people are downplaying it. Um, well, let's, let's, let's talk about some of the different dimensions of this and, and see whether we end up at the same place the initial reactions are. Uh, Ryan, one of the things that is going on right now, and I know you guys have been following it pretty closely, is the effort by the White House to stop this from, from being published uh, seems a bit of closing the barn door after the horse has gotten out, but there's some differing views on it, and I know you have an interesting perspective, so maybe you could talk about that for a second. Sure. Um, so I think 
Greg in his um, column at the Post is hitting on two important pieces that we should not lose sight of. So I think, you know, one important piece is what is in the book and the revelations on, which I think is very important. But then the second piece that Greg's also focused on is what does this suggest that the administration has abused the classification system to try to block um, the book from being released is an important question. So even if the book did, and you know, I do think the horse has left the barn, it is released. It's, it's at distributors. It's at bookstores already uh, across the country. It's going to be released. But it's still an important question. Are they abusing the classification system? And the second question is that they are, in a certain sense, in this process going after potentially First Amendment uh, free speech rights and also going indirectly after the publisher. So that's the core question. I guess the way I come at it that might be different, and Dave and I had talked about it before the pod, which is I do think that the government has a good chance of winning. I do think that when I read the details of the book, and curious to hear later in this segment, um, David talk about the other segments of the book that we haven't heard about in the press yet, there's classified information in that, or at least I think there's a reasonable argument that there is classified information in the details in the book. The details that Bolton gives us of information about leader-level conversations between the President of the United States and the heads of state of China, North Korea, uh, UK, Russia, and others, jeopardizes future negotiations with those countries of a sitting president and the book coming out in the same time that they're trying to handle those policy issues. Details that he gives of the president's internally stated views on a nuclear agreement with North Korea, for example. Potentially, I haven't, we don't have these parts of the book yet, but his views on uh, the US government's views on Putin and therefore the gaps in our information on foreign leaders, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made. So I'll even go as far as to say when Ratcliffe, uh, the director of national intelligence, released a statement yesterday saying there's classified information in the book as it currently exists, I think he's got a good argument for it. And in the one last piece on it is Paul Nakasone, who many people respect as the general, who is the director of the National Security Agency, has a declaration in the brief that the government filed uh, yesterday, in which he says, and they say, concluded that the disclosure of some of the classified information contained in the manuscript, quote, could result in a permanent loss of valuable signal intelligence source and cause irreparable damage to the U.S. signal intelligence system, end quote. So that's, you know, where I come out on that. Just to add one last point to it is there's something funny in the way in which it potentially dovetails with something that Greg just touched on uh, in his remarks, which is people uh, on the left saying, oh, I'm not going to buy the book. Um, I think there's such a good likelihood the government wins the case against Bolton. He will therefore get no profits, no royalties, no speaker fees from the book. So it might encourage people on the left to buy the book, read it, and send it to your conservative friends for more people to read it because it's such a damning account of the state of affairs with the president. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to go straight to Greg to get a response to that, but David, since you're something of an expert in issues of classification, um, let's hear your opinion and then maybe Greg can respond to both. Well, I haven't read the whole book. Uh, I've read some sections of it uh, on, on topics that I'm particularly interested in, in hearing uh, what he had to go say. So far in my reading, I haven't run across anything that I could remotely consider classified, except if you take 
Ryan's uh, reference to leader-to-leader conversations. And there, if um, you wanted to uh, put John Bolton into a jail cell, um, he'd have lots and lots of company from uh, aides from uh, previous administrations. Um, Robert Gates wrote the most, while President Obama was still in office, wrote the most detailed and in some cases damning account of debates about Syria, about Iran, and so forth in the Situation Room. And the Obama administration stopped short of making the argument that the uh, Trump administration has made. And the Trump administration sort of says any conversation that takes place in the Situation Room is by nature classified. Well, they've been holding much of their COVID-19 conversations in the Situation Room on subjects that are not classified. Um, I, don't, I don't buy the argument. I think the government may well succeed after the book is out in stripping uh, Mr. Bolton of the revenues from his book advance and book sales and maybe speeches that come out of it. That's certainly what happened to um, the SEAL who wrote about the uh, killing of uh, bin Laden. But I have a very hard time believing that any court is going to try to do a a, a prior restraint and try to and grant the government's effort to block the book from coming out, especially since there seem to be copies of it floating around newsrooms across America. So, Greg, you've written about this. What, what, what's your reaction to those comments? Well, I'd like, I'd like to throw a question out there if I could, and this is on something that, that I, I wrote about and talked to Josh Geltzer about at some length. He was quoted in my piece the other day. Um, what I don't quite follow is... Um, how it could be possible that there could you know, there could be lots of classified information in the book after the procedure it went through with I believe her name was Ellen Knight correct the, right the, the lawsuit uh, lays out who's uh, a career official we should note right and and so and and what was sort of extraordinary is that the first the first crack at the lawsuit was pretty candid in saying that 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 the political appointees had intervened um, and so. It, it, it described a process that seemed quite lengthy and rigorous in which the book went back and forth and, and Bolton made significant revisions, if I'm reading it correctly. And this career official who clearly is going to be paying extremely close attention in a situation like this, given the intense interest from, you know, we all know who and uh, the people around him, it, it would seem inconceivable to me that any large amount of stuff could slip through that would be even debatable. Is that right or wrong? Ryan? So I do think that's the strongest indication that this is all being politicized. Um, So she finishes a review, everything Greg just said, she finishes a review and basically signs off after this long iterative process in which Bolton has conformed to her uh, conditions essentially, and then says there's nothing left in this that's classified. And then indeed, it's not just like the political side of it takes off, but these are political people who have a very checkered history in the political manipulation of intelligence. So the very person who is now telling us that it's got classified information is a bad actor uh, in the Ukraine affair. He It does seem to be the person that in part uh, puts the um, unclassified um, transcript 
with the Ukrainian president in the vault that is uh, for highly secretive information shouldn't be in there. So abuses the system there. So I do think there's that. Um, I, th- what's difficult for me to, and so therefore it's difficult to reconcile. Um, I do think therefore it's also difficult to reconcile Paul Nakasone. So what do we do with that? Um, it's a pretty strong statement. It seems like on his part saying that the current manuscript contains very damaging classified information. Um, even a stronger statement than Ratcliffe's. Um, I agree with Ryan that uh, Nakasone's um, uh, statement, which is included in the uh, the court filing from last night, jumped out at me. He referred specifically to signals intelligence uh, and seemed to suggest that it could be embarrassing to an ally, but didn't quite say that. The way I read that was that somebody reading the book with uh, a knowledge of how um, uh, Bolton would have gotten the information would have concluded that there was some kind of intercept that perhaps was collected from a country that didn't know we were using their territory to be doing that kind of collection. But that's guesswork. Um, and uh, I think do think that that's probably the most interesting case you could go make. It does raise the question, though, why didn't the NSA raise that issue when it was going through the staff review and was that were those concerns resolved or ignored by the staff i can't imagine that the staff uh, of the nsc didn't run that by somebody in nsa because nsa does a big book review operation of its own yeah it also seems curious that this process has been underway for months and months and months, and the book has been delayed as a result of this process. And it is only at the last minute, um, or maybe a minute after the last minute, that they've, you know, made this this effort. And it, it looks more like a Hail Mary than it does like an effort to defend U.S. national interests in any serious Way. It's mostly, that, mostly a Hail Mary to get him on the bestseller list up at the top. <laughs> yes. you know, where you could, I mean, David, can you imagine you would have paid somebody to have the U.S. government try to block one of your books about the National Security Council? Imagine what it would have done for sales. I'm going to try that on the very next one. Um, um, <laughs> so, Greg, Greg, as you look at this and as you take away, you know, what do you think lasting aftershocks are likely to be, or are there going to be none? Is this just more of the same old narrative? Trump's not very smart. He doesn't know whether Finland's part of Russia. He doesn't know whether the UK has nuclear weapons. Uh, he's willing to sell out anybody, anytime, if it helps him get reelected. Yep, that's our good old Trump. Well, I'd just like to address some of the stuff that just came up a few few seconds ago. Um, you know, we often say, oh, Trump, like, yes, it's true that, that Trump sort of inexplicably drove Bolton's book to the very top of the bestseller list and so forth. But Trump is almost certainly not actually trying, or I should say, is almost certainly not just trying to block the book. He's also trying to pick a fight that he thinks his base will like and, you know, continue the deep state narrative where everything that's going wrong with his presidency, which is in, in pretty much close to collapse right now, is the fault of nefarious forces and, and deep state operatives and 
and the Washington Swamp and so forth. So, you know. We, we at Deep State Radio like to take credit for all of it. Uh, well, <laughs> you guys have been doing a great job of bringing down the Trump presidency, that's Thank for sure. You. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, and so, to a, yes, it, it, Bolton gains enormously, but, uh, but obviously Trump thinks he gains enormously, whether or not there are any actual legal repercussions, any, any legal successes here. Um, I don't really know whether it helps him that much. At this point, I think his, his standing is so degraded and diminished that I think almost all fighting plays against him. All fighting of any kind plays against him with the very voters that he needs to win back, right? We're talking about uh, mostly educated uh, suburbanites, whites who might be moderate or even somewhat Republican-leaning who have just absolutely had it with all the chaos and the public expressions of racism and the incitement of hatred and, and uh, the refusal to take responsibility for, for COVID and, and the actual horrible impact that that's having. So every time he gets into one of his big public fights, I, I don't see how much, can, how much juice can he squeeze out of his base with this stuff. I, I, it just seems like he's squeezing a, a lemon that's been you know, run over by a car, right? right? Um, and at this point, just the nonstop chaos and the, and the nonstop fighting with everyone in sight, people just want to get past this already. I don't see how it helps them. Um, you know, on, on the specifics of the book itself, I think it's plausible to suggest that maybe uh, it undermines, the book could undermine one of his central cases for re-election in the following way, right? He has spent something like millions and millions of dollars on ads in the swing states right now, going after Biden as soft on China and, and portraying himself as tough on China. It's hard for me to see how he can continue making that argument after these types of revelations on that front in particular. Yeah, no, one, an go, go ahead, may, one answer to that may be, Greg, that, that the book, fascinating as it is to all of us, because we do foreign policy for a living and we have dealt with some of these characters along the way and certainly dealt with the issues is that it will move not a single vote that in the base Bolton is already considered to be, you know, an, an, an enemy of the Trump administration. Certainly the president has cast him as such in his public comments and his tweets that whatever president Trump does is considered to be, uh, uh, to be in the national interest, even if it's also in his own interest, and that the mere shaking of things up is enough. And that to the people who don't like Donald Trump and don't like his policies and think this has been a ridiculous, norm-busting, um, uh, self-profiting presidency, all they're going to get from this is confirmation. So I'm not sure this book actually moves many votes. Maybe a few independents in the middle, but I'm not certain. Well, you know, Ryan, you zeroed in on one of Trump's most compelling arguments against uh, Bolton, and that is in a conversation with the Wall Street Journal, Trump noted that, <laughs> that, that, that Bolton opposed the travel ban for COVID. And, I, you know, why don't you talk about that a little bit? It's quite hilarious. Um, so Trump is trying to tell the Wall Street Journal that he, Trump, is hardline on China, and, you know, Bolton was actually kind of soft. And so he says at a particular moment, um, so when I did the travel ban, Bolton opposed it. And you, everybody was in the room, you were there. He must be pointing to one of the aides to say you were there. 
which is incredible because the travel ban was discussed inside the Trump administration late January, imposed February 2nd, 2020, and Bolton had left the administration on September 10th of 2019. <laughs> so he wasn't there. Um, and the Wall Street he Journal- He was there in spirit. He was <laughs> against it, Eddie. <laughs> it's just like the man will try to lie like a very bad real estate broker, no matter what in the moment. And it's just, so the ridiculousness of the lie, it's so falsifiable and ridiculous that Michael Bender, the Wall Street Journal- uh, journalist actually did pick up on this, and he said, "So you've consulted with Bolton on <laughs> coronavirus?" To which Trump isn't—I'm not sure what how he's reacting to it—but he says no, <laughs> just showing that it was just a the farce of the whole um, listening to whatever Trump has to say to counteract uh, allegations against him. Um, just two quick things are: I do also think just to marry up a couple things that one that David said and the one that Greg said. So I totally want to agree with something David said, and just in case it's unclear. I do not think that the government's going to win on the prior restraint. I do think the government has a good chance of winning on enforcing the contract with Bolton so he gets none of the royalties. And then that goes to yeah. yeah. And then that goes to Greg's point uh, Greg's point as well, which is I think there's another signal potentially being sent here, which is to other would-be authors who are former USG, you will get no financial incentive out of the books if they win on this. And that's between now and November potentially, or maybe you know, beyond November. Interesting. Let me turn the page here. I'll go back to David for, for, for one second, because, you know, the, all the stories of the past 24 hours have focused on uh, this China revelation, uh, on some of these gaffes, or, you know, where, you know, where is, you know, is Finland part of Russia kind of things. But by the uh, way, when we do those deep State radio mugs. I think you need to do one in which, with a map on it, in which Finland is part of Russia. <laughs> well, and the Duchy of Finland was briefly part of Russia, but let's <laughs> not go back to that. Um, uh, but, but David, there's some parts that you've been looking at that haven't been looked at that closely pertaining to Iran and some other issues. Have you found anything new that we can discuss here that that people may not have heard about? No, I think. I think one thing that jumps out, and of course we all knew this from our our own reporting, but it's confirmed by him, is that the president is um, supremely confident in his own negotiation skills, despite the fact that there is absolutely no evidence in his major negotiations with North Korea, um, his uh, not yet happened negotiations with Iran, that he can actually get anything that anybody else didn't. And so there's a space in the book where the president says to Bolton uh, that he thinks he can do a one-day negotiation with Iran and, you know, basically get a better deal than it took the Obama administration three years to get. Uh, With North Korea, um, we know, uh, I remember from the time that we were in Hanoi for that, uh, that second meeting, which uh, Bolton was, was on the inside of that um, Bolton and Pompeo had to talk down the president from taking a deal in which North Korea would have given up the decrepit old Yongbyon facility and nothing outside it where almost all of its missiles and its new nuclear facilities are in return for a relaxation of of, uh, sanctions. So the theme that comes across in all of those sections is that the president is so eager for a deal, so eager to be able to stand up and say, I've accomplished what no other president has, 
that he's completely uninterested in what's actually in the deal. And you saw that in signing a hasty uh, accord with the North Koreans that meant nothing and fell apart immediately uh, in Singapore. And you see it in his confidence that his sanctions will so break the Iranians that, they'll, that they would immediately fold and come to the table. Well, it's been two years and three months. And if negotiations have happened, I've missed them. Well, I think, you know, Greg, this is a point that hasn't perhaps been discussed quite enough here. And that is, whatever we all, you know, inside the Beltway or inside the swamp or inside the United States may think of these revelations, which is to say they're not revelations, they're confirmations. Um, Trump is compromised on the international stage in a way that no other president in our memory has been. Uh, it is clear that other leaders think he can be manipulated. The formula for how to manipulate him is in this book. Uh, his ignorance is on display in this book. His failings um, are on display in this book. It's, it's kind of hard to imagine how he could go back into the world uh, in the remainder of this term or in a second term with even a, a shred of leverage or or, or credibility, don't you think, Greg? Yeah, and, I, and I should, I'd also point out that if you think about the, who he's running against, Biden, it comes at a particularly bad time for, for that to be out there. I mean, it's turning out that in many ways, the, the choice of Biden is turning out to have been a prescient one by Democrats, I think. Here's a really good example of that. Um, to whatever degree these revelations do or don't sink in, there's a general impression created that this guy is just completely out of his depth when it comes to international affairs, that you know, he's essentially making a hash of everything on every front. I think that message will come through as, as the background noise for a lot of people. And Biden, whether fairly or not, is perceived as a guy with some stature on, on foreign policy and national security issues. And it seems to me this plays in, in his favor. And this leads me back to, to something that we were talking about before, uh, I wonder whether the question of whether this will move any voters or not is almost too limited a way to look at it, right? Mm. Another way to think about it is that uh, if you look at some of the polling that came out today and some of the great reporting in, in David's paper by Maggie Haberman and some others, Trump is losing right now. And, and that's, that's just, a, it's just, a, it's just a, a, a fact that's borne out by all the data and everything that Trump's own advisors are privately telling people. and to the degree that there's just more noise and more chaos and just more Trump thrashing around incompetently and doing this and, and tweeting that, it just costs another day in which he needs to win people back, right? He's at a point right now where he's in the low 40s. That's, in the, case, that's the case in the polling averages in every one of these swing states, including Florida, which is a must win for him. He's got to win a lot of people back. And the people he needs to win back, I'm not saying it can't be done. I, I think he could still win. But the people he needs to win back right now are the very same ones who don't want to hear this kind of stuff anymore. So the clock is ticking. And every time this happens, it just costs him another day or another week. So, Ryan, I, I want to turn the pages back a little bit here. And I want to pose the question to you that goes back to conversations we had you know, six months ago, nine months ago. This book 
specifically um, mentions other cases, China, Turkey, um, where you know that would have been worthy for investigation by the House Democrats. The House Democrats, you know, made this conclusion. Let's let's zero in on Ukraine, which, by the way, Bolton also confirms all that happened. Um, uh, but you know, and and you know, you can't defend Bolton's stance on this. If he cared about the country, he would have brought this up before those hearings or during those hearings. If he really cared about national security and national interest, but he didn't. He decided to hold off until he could benefit, at least theoretically, monetarily from this. But to me, it also says the House Democrats didn't press hard enough. The House Democrats did not dig far enough. The case against Trump is much more sweeping. And I know, you know, you back then, back in the day, you were, you were, you had a slightly different view. You thought they were doing the right thing, trying to get this done. Did this, did this change your view at all? Um, it didn't, but, you know, maybe that's my own problem. <laughs> but, um, I still think that it's a counterfactual and the factual is but, that. But you see that I'm going to beat yeah. this dead horse for, for, for years to come, right? Um, yeah, so I still think that, and it's also a counterfactual, like would Bolton have even showed up then if they had expanded the aperture, um, and still didn't ever subpoena him, right? Because they backed down under the threat. Um, but I, I, the, the factual narrative that I still think about is that the turning point for me was when, or what I thought was the turning point empirically speaking, is when the, a lot of them freshmen, House, Democrats, and purple state districts with a national security background wrote that Washington Post op-ed and said, we are on board, this narrative, this framework fits, and it's easy to explain, and it's a threat about national security with respect to trading off his personal interests versus um, a U.S. ally trying to stave off the Russians. That worked for them. And if it had been broader than that, it wouldn't. I think they would have dropped off. Um, and um, I do think that Bolton, I, don't th- I think it's impossible in a certain sense to defend Bolton uh, because it's not his choice. The Congress wanted him there. The country wanted him there. He can't then say, well, that's not my venue. And in fact, say my venue is the Senate-led Republicans, uh, the uh, Republican-led Senate, and that's where I'll show up. I'm not going to show up for the House-led, the Democratic-led House. But there's something to the idea whereby he's having a big splash now, and it was, in a certain sense, politicized in in a way that was going to go nowhere. It was going to hit a dead end with Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell was scheming as well as the Wall Street Journal reported after the vote behind the scenes with the White House during the entire impeachment process. Would it have really moved the needle um, on any of those uh, Republicans who voted uh, for the president at the end of the day? I don't know. So then in, so everything we're learning from Bolton now would have been in that um, vortex rather than separate from it. So maybe the, you know, and now it's coming out in the Wall Street Journal and the Wall Street Journal has the first interview and it's coming out not on MSNBC or CNN, but in ABC, um, the interview with Bolton visually with video, um, right in the general, or basically in the general election. If, so if he cares about national security for our country, 
which I think he does. I think that's part of his motivation for the book. He thinks that this president is going to sell out the country to North Korea on nuclear weapons. He might be having a bigger effect now than he um, would have then, because it would have all been forgotten. That's all news uh, because Mitch McConnell uh, acquitted the president. Well, David, do you know people on both sides of this? We only have a few minute, couple minutes left, but you know people on both sides of this. Uh, I've heard people say, well, Bolton was being strategic. He didn't want to throw Trump under the bus during the impeachment hearing because he wanted to maintain his viability as a senior player in the Republican um, um, uh, you know, leadership, uh, you know, Washington leadership, and uh, that you know, he wants to still be a relevant actor. Can John Bolton emerge from this book as a relevant actor in in Republican circles? Probably can. Um, I didn't think that John Bolton would reemerge at the end of the Bush administration to come back into the Trump administration. I was wrong. So, you know, here what he's doing is laying out a somewhat more traditional hard hardline Republican view where he's saying we've got to be, I, I don't happen necessarily to agree with all elements of it, but at least he has got an ideological consistency here that he had before he met Donald Trump and that he had after he left the Trump White House, which is we need to hold on to these hardline sanctions, push back on the Iranians and the North Koreans and so forth. So that's one view in the Republican Party. The other is encompassed in another book that came out this week. Actually, Bolton's hasn't even come out yet. But, um, and it's Bob Gates, the former defense secretary, who writes in his new book that uh, we've got to just accept the fact that North Korea is a nuclear power. They're not going to give back their 30 or 40 or 50 nuclear weapons, however many you think it is now. Basically accept them as Pakistan and settle for arms control, no testing, limits on their missiles. That's a very different view that is also within uh, the Republican establishment. And what I find really fascinating about this is that you've got Bolton and Gates. So of colliding over what should be the right Republican approach. And you have Donald Trump in this account and other accounts basically saying, I don't care about either one of those. Tell me which one is good for me in the moment. Well, you know, Greg, so this brings us to the last, you know, $64,000 question, the unanswerable that we keep trying to answer uh, that you touched upon in your last comment. And that is, is Donald Trump dead meat? There's 120,000 people dead as of today, uh, uh, as of the reports today with regard to COVID. It could be 200,000 by October. It could be 300,000, according to uh, estimate Juliet Kayyem made uh, uh, on our podcast by the end of the year. Uh, and we know those are undercounted. Uh, 50 million people have been unemployed. Uh, and the president has been revealed in not just this book, but in countless books, to be a boob and unfit and corrupt and uh, uh, incapable of performing the job at even a minimal level. Sounds like John Bolton and Bob Gates and others are positioning themselves for the next chapter. Maybe Lisa Murkowski has started to do that. Maybe Mitt Romney is starting to do that. Don't is forget Mike Pompeo. 
Yeah, Mike Pompeo. <laughs> Mike Pompeo. Um, to Bolton. I mean, you the, the ad that could be done of Trump officials saying that Bolton, I mean, that Trump was an idiot, a fucking idiot, um, you know, full of shit, so forth, be quite an ad. Is it over for Donald Trump, Greg? No, 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 absolutely not. I mean, we have to remember that the Electoral College uh, structural advantage that he has is really, really significant. A lot of it's rooted in the fact that, uh, you know, there's an outsized proportion of blue-collar, non-college whites in, in, the, in the blue wall states that he, he cracked. Uh, Pennsylvania is a little bit closer than I think a lot of Democrats would like right now, although Wisconsin is, is uh, I think, pleasing them more than they expected. Um, uh, you know, there are roots for Trump still. He, he, he gets, if, if he's able to hold on to Wisconsin and Arizona, you know, he still, he can still, and Florida, he still wins, I think. Um, so no, I would definitely not say he's out of it, but it, he's in very serious trouble. I think there's a risk. Sometimes we all, there's almost a presumption built in that Trump is this Houdini like figure who, who, and I think I've said this a way too many times on, on this radio program already. But, you know, he's not a Houdini-like figure. He is, his party has lost a tremendous amount of political ground in the last three, three years of elections. And there is clearly a solid anti-Trump majority in this country right now. Uh, another thing that I think me, uh, suggests that he's in real trouble is that the Biden campaign's being pretty smart. They're, they just went up with 15 million and new ads and in the swing states and so forth that, that look to me to be very well um, uh, messaged to capitalize on the chaos of this moment. They don't seem to be uh, getting sidetracked by this or that Twitter war or this demand from the left. Uh, they're sticking to their game plan. They're not getting rattled by the ups and downs. And, and that, to me, suggests that they have a, a long-term vision of how this is going to play out. M I'm, my understanding from having talked to them about this is that they are absolutely preparing for it's a titan, which I was glad to hear. They're preparing for the possibility of, uh, you know, quote-unquote, good jobs reports, which uh, bring us within 15 million. Uh, keep it, we're only 15 million in the hole rather than 20 million. Um, and Trump, of course, going out and spinning that. He is in serious trouble. His own advisors say it. Uh, he is clearly out of his depth on the two major crises rocking the nation right now, the COVID and, and, the, and mass protests sweeping the place. He doesn't seem to know that his, his uh, approach to these things is, continues to alienate people, as Maggie Haberman's reporting seems to have uh, demonstrated pretty well. But you can never count out an incumbent, especially one like him with this kind of... I will tell you one quick thing. Uh, Democrats I talked to in Wisconsin, the one thing that worries them is nobody really knows how deep the pools of blue-collar white support are for him in places like rural Wisconsin. If he can get that turnout really juiced up, all bets are off. You just don't know what's going to happen. Um, and then, by the way, one last thing that some of the polling looks to me like, you know, some of the smart polls, polling analysts have been pointing out that there are still some problems in the polling in terms of registering the proper vote share for, for working class whites, which was an issue in 2016. So I, I think nobody can relax for a second. 
Well, there you have it, folks. There's a new book out. It says the president of the United States is an idiot, that he's corrupt, that he's incompetent, that um, he shouldn't be president of the United States. It's written by one of his closest advisors, his longest-serving national security advisor. Um, it doesn't come as a big shock to Washington insiders who know all those things to begin with, and Trump might win again anyway. So, have a nice day. Uh, that's... <laughs> That's it for this uh, episode of Deep State Radio. We'll be back to discuss this uh, saga after we've had a few drinks. Um, uh, I would encourage you, by the way, we're doing two episodes today, one on this, one on the COVID crisis, because we don't want to lose sight of that, because uh, it's not slowing down America just because you want it to be over. And so we've got uh, Lori Garrett and Lena Wen and Kavita Patel all joining us to discuss that. So listen to both of these uh, podcasts and join us again uh, next week on Deep State Radio. Thank you to Greg. Thank you to David. Thank you to Ryan. And thanks to all of you for listening.